The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. After a lifetime of ADD-induced hyperfocusing, I have decided to share the things that fascinate me. I'm Jack, and welcome to Musings of an ADD Mind. Hello, welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is Jack, your host, and I have the ADD Mind. Today, I'm very excited. I'm joined by a very special guest, Christina Wyckoff. She's an archaeologist, and she is going to, real quick, tell us her path to becoming an archaeologist, and then we're going to discuss some of the cool things she's done as an archaeologist. So, hello, Christina. Hello, Jack. Thank you for having me on your podcast. You're welcome. Just a full disclosure, she works in the same office that I do for the state of Oklahoma. And Otherwise, you never would have had me on this show. Well, our paths <laughs> wouldn't have crossed. <laughs> but yes, no, Christina is very knowledgeable. She's done some really cool things in her career. And um, I'm just going to let her sort of quickly give a rundown on sort of how she got to where she was. So go ahead, Christina. Well, I started out with a history degree, a bachelor's in history um, at the uh, university, well, I should say Oklahoma State University in Stillwater. And I later acquired a master's in anthropology from the University of Oklahoma in Norman. The, The superior university in the state. Well, I cannot say that. (laughs) <laughs> no, you cannot. Because I wouldn't be able to go to half of the places in the state <laughs> if I picked a side. <laughs> yes, but I can be partial. You you may be partial. Yes. <laughs> I definitely, I will say, as someone who grew up in Stillwater and chooses to live in Norman, I love both towns for different reasons. That, that's perfectly acceptable. Anyway, <laughs> sorry to interrupt you. That's, that's No, funny. not at all. I ADD'd, ADD'd you. That's your job. Right. (laughs) So I I got my master's in anthropology from the University of Oklahoma, and I worked for about nine years uh, doing cultural resource management archaeology, largely archaeological reports for highway projects um, throughout the state of Oklahoma. And... uh, now I'm working in your office reviewing a lot of those projects that other people submit. Yes, you're, you're now on the other end of the, of the submission process. I am. But before I settled on working in uh, the United States, my, initially what had drawn me to archaeology was learning about the Minoans um, and uh, the island of Santorini, um, which was called Thera at the time, and the volcanic eruption on the island of Thera and the aftermath of that. That was what fascinated me. I had intended to pursue a career working in the Mediterranean. My um, That sounds horrible. <laughs> it does sound horrible. So um, when I started at the University of Oklahoma, a very wise faculty member who happened to be the chair of my committee 
advised me to check it out, to go do some field work and see if that's what I wanted to pursue. And so I, I did. I have volunteered on an excavation on the island of Crete, which is gorgeous. And if you ever have an opportunity to go there, you should. It's beautiful. I will. The olive oil will. is divine. <laughs> yes. Um, and I got to work at a site named uh, Priniaticos Pyrgos. And uh, I should send you a link. The um, people, the researchers who are working out there still have done a great job with resources about those excavations. I was so, there in 2007. So is that like a city or like castle or some sort of, I don't know, like a you know religious ruin or all of the above? Well, there it was an occupation in different periods, but the site was, it spanned a huge period of time and I have not kept up on the recent research so uh, you'll have to forgive me but I know that at the site um, there the site dated back to the Neolithic period there were um, hearth features there were tons of Greek pottery sherds Roman roads Venetian glass as I recall, there was a burial from World War II there, a German burial. Oh, wow. There, The site had everything. And it was also um, right on the beach. So uh, it was a like a rocky outcrop on the beach. And one of the units that I was excavating as I was sitting there uh, excavating with my little Maddox, which is like a little pickaxe. Mm-hmm. Um, and my little, you know, uh, tray to scoop the soil into, I was being misted by sea spray that was crashing on the rocks. Oh, wow. Really, you cannot imagine a better, more like, luxurious, uh, site to be a shovel bum. Yeah, that has to be, uh, nicer than, I don't know, doing a dig in, like, the Mojave Desert. <sighs> I mean, the Mojave Desert, I'm sure, has some really interesting silver linings. But yes, I don't think you get misted by sea spray. Yeah. And if you could real quick just explain how far back the Neolithic period was. Because, you know, clearly (laughs) that wasn't like, you know, 500 years ago. (laughs) Lithic means stone. And then Neo means new. Um, but as far as dates, I I don't have that um, in my head. So okay. I'm Googling it for you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not something that I just know off the top of my head. Right. Well, the Minoans were, correct me if I'm wrong, are they not one of the sort of earlier civilizations that we know of, the Bronze Age sort of period or pre-Bronze Age period? So, yes. Well, I mean, again... As I was excavating at this site, please keep in mind that my research did not include the Minoans. It was just an area that interested me. But yes, you're talking about approximately like 3500 BC, somewhere in there, to um, it butts up against when the uh, mainland. Greece, the Mycenaeans, um, 
and yes, that that Bronze Age period. But yes, it um it extends early. No, it is it's Bronze Age, but yes, thirty okay. five hundred ish. Yeah, so if it was thirty five hundred BC. Then we're talking about you know five thousand years ago. Just a little bit of it's time. a long time ago, but there was a lot of time before that too. So right, yeah. So what would you say was like the not like necessarily something that you did, but on the uh, island that you got an opportunity to look at was just like the most mind sort of blowing thing that you always have to tell everyone about. Well, for one thing, it's just totally different to walk around the island of Crete or mainland Greece. I, I did walk around Athens a little bit for um, because the archaeology is also part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. And it's a little different than most places I've lived. And there are um, places in the U.S. where you can see, like Monk's Mound, for instance. I drive past that whenever I'm traveling between Oklahoma and Chicago, and it's a big, you know, archaeological landmark. There are mounds in the state. There are other resources like this that, that you can see if you're looking for them. But mm-hmm. walking around. Greece, it was, you know, the archaeology is right there. You can't miss it. Um, even if you were, even if you couldn't see, you would stub your toe on it, right? Um, Every time so, you sneeze, you unearth the new <laughs> archaeological find. Exactly. And um, and when people are excavating these resources, and it's known a lot of the time. And uh, there was one street I was walking down where they had removed a section of sidewalk and replaced it with this thick plexiglass like stuff so you could watch the archaeologists excavating below the street. Oh that's really um cool. yeah. So I did get to look at the um Minoan I tried to visit as many of the Minoan palaces as I could. I mm-hmm. went to um oh I wish I had all their names in front of me. So Knossos, Mm -hmm. which is, um, archaeologists will tell you, it's kind of like Disneyland because the archaeologist who excavated it really wanted to recreate it so people could see how great it was, but not entirely accurately. So um, it is beautiful and really interesting, but um, it's not... It's not history, right? It's a it's a reproduction. It's an artistic rendering of what an archaeologist thought uh, might have been there. Sort of like a made-for-TV movie, and it was, you know, based on actual facts. Yeah, made-for-TV movie where you read the Sparks notes. Okay. <laughs> but it, it is beautiful, and I, I uh, really enjoyed walking through that palace it was really incredible and and it does give you a sense that you don't get walking around a ruin um because they have you know repainted some of it and uh, and there is a there's a sense of majesty that i think does get lost when you're looking at more accurate archaeological sites right so maybe there's something there's a plus there but you have to be careful about it because you are it, it is fantasy rather than reality right you couldn't do it because of the money involved but it would be cool if you could have like the ruin and then build the recreation next to the ruin so then you could have both 
Right. And actually, I think there were people working. Um, it's been a long time since I was at an SAA's uh, Society for American Archaeology, uh, which is a big conference and you can learn lots of cool stuff. Um, but I recall at one of the, well, at one of the more recent ones I attended, uh, there was a lot of artificial intelligence that people were using to mm -hmm. look at an archaeological site. So, for instance, you could take your phone to um, to an archaeological site and the GPS data and the angle the of your phone, you could look in the camera and sort of, or in this app, and see what archaeologists or other historians and researchers believe that place looked like at different periods of time. Now, now that is awesome. That is, yeah. that is really cool. Is I get the feeling a lot of time that, especially people in America, they tend to think that like, and people from, you know, societies long ago were just sort of stupid and they couldn't do anything. And I don't know, they needed aliens to do stuff, but they were smart. They could figure stuff out. They built incredible, amazing things without, modern technology to do it and it's just incredible the you know the things that they were able to build and even something as simple as an aquifer 20 or 2000 bc was a major major undertaking <laughs> it is absolutely now, but, you know and so that's kind of cool that someone could go to a place and then look on it and be like oh wow it's impressive as a ruin it was really impressive you know at the time when people lived there that's really cool. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were there, did you get to go to, um, uh, was it Santorini? That was the volcano that erupted that they think, uh, led that, Yes, help. Santorini yeah. is the island. And no, I didn't get to go. And the, um, the archaeological site is, oh, I'm going to come up with it. Um, it's Akrotiri. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I didn't get to go because at the time, this was in 2007, and they had closed the site because so it was dangerous. They were having to um, support some of it to protect it. Ba basically, the volcano erupted, and you have all of this pumice. Right. This, like, light stone, right, that falls um, and covers the space covers the ground in the area and it covered this town, this uh, community of Akrotiri um, and protected it from the ash and the um, actual lava that came from the <laughs> volcano afterwards. So you had this like time capsule oh, wow. um, and <laughs> yes, it's a really cool site um, that I would love to actually go to um but at the time they were having some structural issues with those something i can't recall exactly but they had closed the entire site oh, uh, and wow. so i did not i did not make the trip to santorini when i was closer than i've ever been before or since right, <laughs> because right. of that and that eruption um once again correct me if i'm wrong it like didn't it take out something like half the island or a quarter of it or something like that. It was like a huge eruption, was it not? Like, yes, made so Mount St. Helens look like small fries. Oh, man. So there's this really great book by Charles Pellegrino, I think. I'm looking him up. And it's called Unearthing Atlantis. 
And it was written in the 90s. But um, if you are interested in this stuff, it is phenomenal. He's a geologist. And so he was sort of uh, thinking about the Mediterranean in uh, much broader terms than, or, you know, in a much larger timeline than even archaeologists do. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was also very familiar. He'd done a lot of research and... (sighs) He, he had some great, I, I, at the time when I first read this book, I, I wasn't really into reading footnotes, but I read every single one of his footnotes. Wow, that's, <laughs> connect- uh, that's, that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> he connected um, a lot of interesting facts about Egyptian pharaohs, and um, he explained some of the ideas where people theorize some of the plagues of Egypt could be referential stories that described actual events that followed the this eruption on Thera. Well, yeah, because and, I mean, that would have created a massive uh, tsunami, probably in yes. the Mediterranean was affected by. And of course, one of the, part of that, and so it would affect the Nile. That's right. One of the things that he um, that he described, and he talks about, he's not selling this theory. He's just sort of walking through it and talking about how this just this tiny island and this massive volcanic eruption, the the implications for the surrounding world. I mean, and he he talked even about ash um, that is in oh, the um, the massive trees in California. What are mm-hmm. they called? The redwoods? The sequoia the, redwoods? The redwoods. Yeah. Yes, I believe. I believe. <laughs> those were, but anyway, the ash is in these um, tree rings for oh. trees that date back this far. It's in ice um, that they've, you know, not perma, you know, below the permafrost, whatever the right. cores, they do ice cores in Alaska. Right. And you can see this ash layer, which, again, they've been able to source the ash from this volcanic eruption to both those, to both trees in California and, uh, and ice in uh, Alaska. And anyway, from this, um, from this eruption. That, that's, that's amazing. And as you were explaining that, I just sort of had a thought because, I mean, you know, Hurricane Ida just happened in New Orleans. And it was so powerful that the Mississippi River reversed flow for a little bit, for like four or five hours because of the hurricane. So I would imagine that, you know, the tsunami created from that eruption probably reversed the flow of the Nile for probably caused some flooding issues. I'd, I'd never even really considered that until just now when you said that because, well, a hurricane just happened and I was like, oh, hey, I occasionally can put two and two together. <laughs> well, I, I think it must have been, um, I, I can't imagine what the effects on that enclosed space of the Mediterranean would have been. But but one of the things that he did discuss is if the, if the, there's a, rather than the Red Sea, mm-hmm. there's a smaller sea which is the sea of reeds and he was saying you might have um this the um the pull of the water ahead of the um tidal wave could have drained that sort of 
plain and then flooded it. And rather than the story of, you know, you could explain the story of Moses by a miss, um, like misidentifying the Sea of Reeds as the Red Sea, perhaps. Right. Anyway, he, he talks about uh, a number of these ways of looking at the plagues of Egypt and how, you know, you can, you can see them in this, uh, this volcanic eruption. Yeah, that's, but that's incredible. It's an incredible sight. Uh, so one day I just really, one day I have to go there because that Egypt and the Minoans is what drew me to archeology span in the first place in my, uh, sophomore history world history class we mm -hmm. had to watch this video where we saw some uh imagery uh from akrotiri and uh some imagery from amarna period egypt and the, it's just beautiful the uh, the frescoes mm -hmm. and the, the art on uh the art is just it's like nothing else in Egypt because Egyptian art follows this very strict um, pattern rules of, of form. Like if you look at Egyptian art, you you know look at walls and a tomb like that. The, the um, pharaoh is always depicted in a specific way, right? You, regardless of what he actually looks like, the pharaoh is depicted in a very particular way. Um, figures that are walking are depicted in a particular pose, right? Right. And they're, they're all illustrated. Uh, humans are illustrated in the same form. And then you have this period during Amarna period, Egypt, where the art changes wildly. Is it, <laughs> wasn't that like King Tut's Tutankhamun, but everyone calls him that. Wasn't that his father, um, Akhenaten? Yes, Akhenaten, who's oh. my favorite of the pharaohs. Yes. He's yeah. just so interesting. Yeah, because he sort of switched Egypt to um, theism instead of monotheism. And I guess after he died, the rest of Egypt was like uh, not pleased with that. Editor Jack here from the future. And I wanted to interrupt myself just to clarify that when we're talking about Akhenaten, what I meant to say was that he forced Egypt to move from polytheism to monotheism. And in the moment, I reversed that. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. It's yes. Like you are you are remembering correctly, um, and I uh, only I only have like a hobby um, knowledge of this as well. But um, Akhenaten, uh, one of the, I guess you can read that he's um, you you can read into it that he's just looking for ways to absorb power to himself. But then, in a more favorable light, you could say, look at you could look at how the um, priesthoods of these individual um gods in the ancient egyptian pantheon had accumulated a lot of wealth and power and to have that and taken how, away probably irritated them slightly i yes i would imagine that it would not be what they wanted especially if the pharaoh re um you know assumes all of that wealth and power right. and so yes you note that um i i believe I believe his name was Tuthmosis, and I don't remember which Tuthmosis he was before he changed his name to Akhenaten. Mm -hmm. And then um, Tutankhamun, um, Tutankhamun, 
what I don't remember what his name was before they changed it to that. But you can you can break it up and uh, Akhenaten has Aten in it, and that's this new god that he created, the Aten, which was right. the sun disc with hands. Yeah, and they the priesthood after he died though they didn't they go and like in a lot of like art that depicted him like just chisel his face off because they were so ticked off at him. It, am I yes, correct in that? Because they did that frequently with like pharaohs that like sucked. <laughs> yeah, basically removing them from history, re- removing their faces from the carvings. And the face, again, would be sort of the the place where the pharaoh would be distinguished from others. And then um, even chiseling out names where they were um, where they were memorialized and burying. Like, he created this entire city of Amarna, mm-hmm. and the whole city was like buried and hidden and abandoned that's so. that's taking it to the extreme that <laughs> that would be like joe biden building a a wall around trump tower in new york city and filling it with sand <laughs> <laughs> i suppose yeah yeah last summer when the pandemic was happening and everybody was working at home i discovered a youtube channel called history with Sai, and he discusses Mesopotamia in, you know, all of the cities that are, you know, when people think of Mesopotamia, generally your knowledge is the Bible. And so you think Babylon and, you know, maybe Nineveh and Jerusalem and then Egypt, but there were a lot more cities and it was dynamic. And if you ever watch like the power struggles and play in Game of Thrones, if that interests you, that actually happened in, you know, Mesopotamia in Anatolia, Greece, and Egypt, and, you know, islands in the Mediterranean, minus the dragons. Just the way that, you know, the dynamic power play was, and cities would rise, and they'd have, like, their reign of power for 50 to 100 years, and then another city would come and take it from them. And pretty much the exception during that time, almost, was Egypt. They were, like, the one constant. And... I don't know if it's because the Nile was sort of so reliable, you know, because it like floods certain time and it helps things fertile. Yeah, if you're if you want to find out some history that's like real Game of Thrones stuff, go and check out History with Size channel because there is all sorts of uh, pretty cool information on there. So now that we've sort of talked about, I guess, European and Mediterranean history. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Oklahoma history, which, of course, you know, a majority of it would be American history. And I guess the tribes that were maybe here before the Trail of Tears and then afterwards. But I know that generally speaking in Oklahoma, when we have archaeology, well, Native American, because it's America, but, you know, as a, as a state that was settled relatively later on, you know, we don't have like old sort of like buildings or whatever, like you know, Massachusetts has or New York. But we do have a lot of interesting, you know, things that happen with, with the tribes in this state. Is there anything that you think is particularly unique to Oklahoma or cool that you want to row out our way? Well, uh, you're right. There were people living here in Oklahoma before... Anglo-American settlers, colonists forced uh, 
Indian people out of their homes and made them relocate into the state. The Wichita and the Caddo are the two tribes that um, I know trace their um, ancestral lands back and include Oklahoma in in their ancestral lands. So they were here before other tribes were relocated to this location. Uh, one of the, well, I guess the only archaeological site, pre-contact archaeological site that's like public, open to the public, is Spyro Mounds. Mm-hmm. And the site is fascinating. It, it really is. Um, there's a visitor center and some uh, interpretive signage there that doesn't really do it justice. But this is an incredible mound site and uh, it, part of a, a larger complex that I, I don't want to use the wrong word to describe it. At, at one point, it was uh, this complex of this much larger cultural group that extends up to include Cahokia and mounds in uh, southeastern United States. Oh wow! Uh, Spiral Mounds is part of this larger complex. And so that's a. I was going to say Spiro isn't. That is the eastern part of Oklahoma, almost to Arkansas. Correct. You are correct. Yes. So if you're ever driving on Interstate 40 West, going east, go check out Spiro Mounds. In Do check it out. Yes, and you can find some information about Spiro Mounds on the Oklahoma Historical Society website. Yes. And plan your visit. Around it. And stop at the Oklahoma History Center. Yes. But um, but yes, we people have been uh, in the state long before the land runs. And that's something that, uh, as a parent, I found really frustrating. And actually, as, a, as a, someone who was born and grew up in Oklahoma, uh, some of the education i guess that i received as a kid as you know some of the things that were celebrated mm-hmm. um i feel very differently about now as an adult well yeah better when we were kids in elementary school they always um, we always recreated the land run you know as a big school event and i i really feel that oklahoma doesn't do Oklahoma history justice because at least when I was a kid, it was like a semester in ninth grade. Right. I feel like it should maybe a be taught sooner and b be longer than a semester. Yes. And you would think you would think you would just absorb some of it by osmosis, but I feel like I did not. I had to actively pursue, (laughs) um, degree in history before in in college before I really was confronted with stories of of uh, people who were forced to live in this state right yeah no the if you've never studied the trail of tears it's really a it is a heartbreaking tale of what was done and when I used to work in retail I would occasionally have people from various tribes and I knew of many people that would not take change in a 20 because they would not put a picture of Andrew Jackson in their wallet because they're still irritated because, well, he's the reason for the trail of tears. I I always found that interesting. And then I I always kind of thought, man, that's kind of holding a grudge. And then I got into my Scottish history and they're 
people in Scotland that won't eat Campbell's soup because of what the Campbells did to the McDonald's, and that was like 500 years ago, so I can't really say anything about holding a grudge. <laughs> well, and, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and while we're on the subject of Oklahoma history, one of the people that sort of led to uh, white settlers coming was a guy named David Payne. Google David Payne and put David Payne, Oklahoma founder or something, because I'm telling you right now, he looks like Freddie Mercury. You can also learn more about David Payne in the Indian Pioneer Papers, uh, which are available online. And um, I know that the University of Oklahoma houses them uh, in their digital library collection, but I think you can find them and through the Oklahoma History. Historical Society also. Oklahoma Historical Society has several divisions, and it's probably in the research division portion of the website, would be my guess. Yes, I believe you are correct. Yeah, it's just, it's really hard in Oklahoma sometimes to go somewhere and not see something that's neat, that's related to tribal history, even though most of the reason the tribes that came here, came here under crappy circumstances, but it was really cool how, I guess not cool, that's not the appropriate word, but it was a crappy situation, but when the tribes did come, they worked really hard to almost remake what they had. I don't know if I'm explaining that correctly. I I do think there's, I'm trying to think of the right word, and I think resilience has some negative connotations as well, but the incredible resiliency of the um, Indian cultures, despite active attempts to destroy them, um, repeated and frankly, continuous active um, efforts to destroy them by the uh, dominant white culture. Yeah. Cause like, just for example, we'll just say the, the Muscogee Indians. When they were brought to Oklahoma, it's not like the federal government loaded up a bunch of U-Hauls and they could take all of their possessions. It was mostly what you could carry or drag, you know, with you. And everything else was, I guess, left and reclaimed by somebody else. And to have to come and completely start over like that when it's not your choice is is tough to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. It would, it would be easy to have, once, I don't know if I'm using the correct terms, but it would have been easy to have not, you know, tried to rebuild, I guess is what I'm saying. What, I mean, what do you do, right? What, yeah. what, what do you, what do you do when everything is take, taken away from you, but you you still exist? And I can't be um, a mouthpiece for people that I, I don't um, right. understand how how you how you survive that how you build something um after you know after everything is stolen from you and and you know family are murdered and and and, you know i think about how do you how do you explain to kids like myself in the 80s that when you dress up in this silly dress and bonnet and drag your red flyer wagon and with the you know little fabric thing over the top across this field and plant a uh, 
piece of wood in the ground and like cheer like you've done something great, that people were here and people were actually, people were moved here, um, you know, against their will and then and told they could stay here, right? And it would um, always be their land and it would never be. I don't have the quote, but yes, um, until the, you know, forever. Yeah. Um, and then have it taken away again. And I think about telling my kids, like, well, how would we feel if somebody just showed up and told us that we couldn't live in our house anymore and we couldn't have any of our th- things. things that we expect and we just had to, you know, grab what we could and walk halfway across the United States and figure and, it out for ourselves. Yeah, and like, what was it, a quarter of your friends and family are going to die? Right. Yeah, um, no, that's... Not- and, yes, yeah, I mean, that's... There's no good... I mean, you can't really <laughs> put words to it. And that that's sort of another thing when we're talking about, like, failure of teaching Oklahoma history in Oklahoma. I never knew until I worked at the History Center that Oklahoma was almost three states. That um, the Panhandle was almost going to be called a state called Cimarron because nobody wanted the Panhandle, which is understandable if you've ever been to the Panhandle. And then <laughs> sort of the the frying pan part of the state was going to be split in two. The eastern half, uh, the tribes got together and they had a constitutional convention and submitted their constitution to Congress uh, before the other half of the state did. And it was going to be called a, a state called Sequoia. And Teddy Roosevelt wouldn't sign it because at the time, Oklahoma, that the whole Indian territory or the twin territories was strongly democratic. And while they had already attached the panhandle, the western you know part of oklahoma he didn't want two states because that would mean four democratic senators and he didn't want that so he made them go back and combine and form one mega state that's not really a mega state which was oklahoma and then they resubmitted the constitution and a lot of the people that were at that constitution convention were in the sequoia constitution convention as well you shouldn't have to work at a history museum in Oklahoma to discover that. That should have been taught in Oklahoma history. <laughs> There's definitely a lot um, a lot about Oklahoma history that I feel like should be part of the curriculum and isn't. Oh, I, I completely agree. I, I think that we should be learning um, about the indian tribes who reside in the state and and more than just um uh, more than just a a paragraph (laughs) about where each tribe was quote relocated from and we should be learning about those cultures um and we should be learning about them from people who belong to them um or at least at least the the curriculum should be dictated by people right. who are represented, and that we should understand. Uh, we should understand more about what the land runs and the allotment process and boarding schools did actively to um, to c- the cultures of the people who occupied the whole of. Uh, what is the continental United States before? Right. 
before colonists came here. Yeah, and the thing, when you study history, you know there's the, when you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it, but those that do study history have to watch those that don't repeat it. (laughs) You know, I discovered, or I've kind of realized that people generally can find a way to be crappy to other people. And so a lot of, you know, what happened in boarding schools to Native Americans, and we're finding out now that it even happened in Canada as well. And that's what England did to the Scottish and the Irish. You spoke Gaelic in a school in Scotland, they would beat the crap out of you. You know, if you spoke Cherokee at a school in Oklahoma, in 1870, you probably got the crap beat out of you. Because losing your language is one of the ways that takes away your culture and then you conform. And it, you know, makes you assimilate, I guess is the word I'm for. I don't know if that's the correct word. I think that's exactly the, the motivation by the party in each of those instances who is um, trying to take away any power or yeah from from the non-dominant group right i guess it still happens today i guess china does that to people in tibet as well but when we see that we respond that it's a that it's a a crime yeah because we treat that now as a human a human rights violation which it is which so that means that it was you know that way in the past as well (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it yes. didn't just like in 1993 well you know what it was wasn't a human rights violation then but it is now right and uh and the effects of all of all of the terrible things that have been done uh, didn't vanish because even if those activities and deliberate attempts to control or uh, harm different communities even if those activities stop the results of them are still continuing right because it does take it's not an overnight thing that goes away because the reservation system that is a pretty poverty stricken part of the u.s and it does it well it's not that it doesn't have to be it shouldn't be and you know that is just still kind of a form of oppression that that is being I guess, handed down uh, to a group of people. There's, there's definitely plenty in our country now that plenty of institutions that help certain people uh, without helping other people. Right. And, and that does not appear to be an accident. Yeah, and I don't want to get into like a whole debate of was going to Afghanistan right or wrong. That would be not only a podcast to itself, it would be a series of podcasts. But, you know, we spent, what, $2 trillion in Afghanistan over 20 years. If we could have just taken $100 million of that and put it towards reservation, we would have definitely got more bang for our buck than we got in Afghanistan. Because that would have been transformative for a lot of, you know, reservations and the people that are in those communities. But anyway. That took a very serious turn when we were going to talk about the coolness of going and what you know, ancient bones. <laughs> I will. I will just take a big detour here and say that when I interact with people in the state, 
And, um, in the past when I was more, more of the work I did was actual survey, uh, people would be really surprised. And a lot of people, um, I should say not Indian persons, but a lot of people would respond by saying like, Oh, there's, there's archeology span here. And yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are plenty of really, really interesting archaeological sites in the state of Oklahoma. In the Northwest, we have some really interesting, um, there's the, uh, Cooper site, um, mm. which is a bison kill site or a site where, um, people, I believe they ran the bison off of a, it was like a mass kill site. Yeah. I, I filed several reports on that site. I, yes, I'm sure you have. Um, and, uh, uh, there's a, a bison skull with a with a lightning bolt. Um, it was the Harry Potter of bison. Exactly. Um, I think that's a really cool archaeological site. But but there are site there there's cool archaeology all over this state, um, and people have been here for more than eleven thousand years um, making archaeology and. Yes, there were people here, and they did leave. They did leave really cool evidence of their presence. Yeah. Well, one day, I'm I'm not giving away the location of this at all, but one day, like, a project came in, and I was reading it, and I was like, oh, that's why the highway makes this weird thing. They had to go around an archaeological site. And <laughs> I thought, that's kind of cool that it was preserved that way and most of the time in america let's be honest progress wins you know roads or buildings and the fact that they went around it i thought was really cool yeah they um the highway system is definitely an interesting place to place to look um when you think about archaeology but also power and communities with different levels of power and mm-hmm. uh, where the highways were built um, right that's yeah that's uh definitely definitely interesting we were just talking about archaeological sites in the state and it occurred mm-hmm. to me that i didn't mention there are some cool um uh trading uh trading camps uh mm-hmm. where the wichita and the french traded in the state that i didn't i didn't mention before. like there are actually you can't go anywhere in the state and not find interesting archaeology uh, and you and because of where Oklahoma is located, you've got, it's all different. It's, um, the Northwest, um, the Northwest up by. You're listening to the musings of an ADD mind podcast. Um, I did some work up by Visai. Oh, okay. Yeah. Spelled Vici, right. but it's spelled, it's pronounced Vaisai. But anyway, there there's fascinating archaeology all over the state of Oklahoma, uh, and all kinds of there's actually there's even a steamboat that was excavated. In oh yeah, the, in, the, um, in the Red River. That's right, and you can see an exhibit on it at the History Center if you were so inclined. Yeah, they did a an entire like sort of mock interactive kind of thing, so you can feel like you're actually walking on the riverboat yes but um 
great archaeology all over the state. I, I think um, archaeology here um, is sometimes, or maybe not just archaeology broadly, but cultural resource management, archaeology mm-hmm. done when in response to or because of some kind of project that um, in the U.S. is getting federal funds. That's when when a cultural resources investigation would sort of be mandated or 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 the federal agency has to consider the effects of their projects on historic properties, as we would say. Correct. Significant historic uh, resources. So so I, I feel like here... Sometimes people look at archaeology as this, uh, it's a pain, it's a hurdle, something that they have to do to build their road. Exactly. They view it as getting in the way of progress. I was talking with somebody and I I was both irritated and saddened because the person was talking about how in California you can't build anything and they have to go and do the archaeological study first and all these archaeologists are making millions of dollars on it. And I was like, hang on. My office occasionally pays for these archaeological studies, and I know what we pay, and California isn't paying that much more than we're paying. And I'm like, there is no such thing as a multi-millionaire archaeologist unless he was selling fake Bible scraps to the Greens in their Bible museum. You know, right. Archaeologists aren't getting rich. I, c- no. I can assure you that Christina is not driving a Tesla. <laughs> Do you re- do you recall, um, it was almost like there was this campaign to get kids not to go into the humanities. Uh, they were basically telling students, this is, you, sh- you will not make money. <laughs> you right. should do anything else. Be a doctor. Be, uh, yeah, some, something that's not in the humanities, uh, which I think is terrible because I think the humanities are so critical for right. just being a person yeah. and interacting with other people. Obviously you need, we all can't be doctors. You know, we all can't be lawyers and humanities is important. You need all of the things. But it's- even if we could all be doctors, there would be something lost if those doctors didn't have an understanding of people right. and, and our past and, you know, why we do what we do and uh, I, I think that, uh, that that would be terrible. <laughs> History is just far more interesting and dynamic than I think it's given credit for. And I don't know why it's not taught in a more dynamic way in school. And I'm not dogging teachers or the education system because I certainly don't know how to make it more dynamic and to get more people into it. I'm not I'm not sure how to do that other than I don't know don't make all of the tests just be with dates. <laughs> <laughs> it's messy though because um I think what makes history really interesting is when you start to understand that there is more than just the dominant perspective that the that the people who were living in the places that the Roman Empire expanded into or the British Empire expanded into or that the American colonies expanded expanded into mm-hmm. um, had 
their own motivations and stories. And it, it gets to be a lot. I mean, I can see struggling to find the, the right way to tell that story. Yeah, it's, it obviously can't be easy. I've often thought about how, you know, Oklahoma history is a semester here, and I've thought, you know, the same thing in Egypt would have to really be, you know, you start in preschool. That's why they used to... college. Egyptian history, right? It used to be basically the king lists. So yeah. it's like, well, you got to learn all the kings, the pharaohs. Who were the pharaohs? Who were, right. who were the leaders of the Holy Roman Empire? That's your history. <laughs> yeah, and because I'm beginning to like my Scottish history and everything, there's always this this group of people, and they always want to be related to. You always see, I'm a, I'm a descendant of William Wallace. Well, first of all, you're not because he didn't have children, so that makes it hard. But I've always thought whoever you were descended from, it's almost more impressive that you're here because they might have had more to overcome for their kids to even, you know, make it and their kids and their kids. So you're selling your ancestors short if you always want to be descended from royalty. Just, you know, my my personal viewpoint. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I do think, though, that like in Europe and the Mediterranean, I do feel that archaeology is not is like seen as an impediment like it is in the US. Um do you get that feeling as well so, or as with everything that we're discussing in this podcast, I'm telling you my personal <laughs> thoughts right. and what I have from my perspective what I've perceived. Correct. Um I do know that in Greece uh, the Greek government got involved because there were so many people um, selling artifacts mm-hmm. um, on the you know illicit antiquities market because you could make money that way, and the and the Greek government responded with a with laws to restrict that. But in addition to those laws, uh, they also built museums everywhere, like community mm-hmm. museums. Um, and the idea, and I suppose I, I can't speak as to whether it was terribly effective or not, but the idea was, this is your history. Like, this is you. This is your past, your history. Mm-hmm. And pride in that, um, in that history and that, that, that um, those artifacts would make you maybe less likely to sell your um, patrimony for profit. Right. Um, and there are museums just everywhere and they're really interesting to visit, um, in Greece. But I, I mean, we certainly have some museums, uh, in sort of, uh, like, have you ever been into like a house museum where you walk in and it's just like, uh, cabinets with tchotchkes everywhere. Um, and it's not a, n- no, it's not uh, temperature controlled or like mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, doesn't have a lot of interpretive displays to tell it's you like what it's you're your looking at. Aunt Martha's house. Yeah, it is. Those places are kind of interesting, but um, I don't think it's quite the same. Right. Uh, and so I don't know if that has anything to do with the with the di- well. There's that, and then 
archaeology is a big tourist attraction in a lot of places in Europe. I mean, how many people go to see the Colosseum in Rome? Right. Yeah. Um, or castles or, in Germany. Or Right. Well, I mean, the same thing in England and Scotland. And, you know, people go for the castles there and castle ruins and, you know, the Parthenon and, <laughs> you know, all of absolutely. that. Absolutely. I don't know. I guess sometimes I think Americans think that if they want to see archaeological sites, they have to go to Europe. And you don't have to do that. There's plenty of it here. Or, you know, you have to go to like Central America and see like Mayan or, you know, Mexico for Aztec. But we have that here as well. And it's all, you know, really cool. And the history of the various tribes in, in America is every bit as, you know, dynamic as in other parts of the world. Yes. There's archaeology every bit as interesting here in this state, in this country. But uh, if you think about, if you think about what, what I was talking about before, Spyro and mm -hmm. uh, the mounds and the mound complex, people saw those mounds when they, when Anglo people first colonized mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the North America, people saw those mounds and the history of frankly racism goes back to there because uh, by which I mean, it goes back that far because in seeing these mounds, which clearly indicated something big that right. wasn't immediately understood by the colonizers who were viewing them, the explanation was not, we don't understand what's happening here. The explanation that was given, and this is absurd, is that uh, this was an additional, uh, what, oh goodness, I've just, one of, an additional tribe of Israel. Right. Came yeah. here. Yeah, that's and actually, these things. that's actually one of the foundations of Mormonism. Well, I apologize if I've offended <laughs> anyone who's Mormon. But I really struggle with that as yeah. um, writing off the works of people who were living in the Americas before they were colonized by Anglo right. peoples. Um, and I feel like, did you see that Indiana Jones movie, The Crystal Skull? I, I did. Yeah, I saw it in a dollar theater, and I really wanted to ask for my money back. I love Harrison Ford, but I was so frustrated. Um, in the film, there are aliens involved. Right. And, uh, spoiler alert, there are aliens involved, and the aliens are collectors. And the aliens have collected artifacts from Western Europe and the Mediterranean, etc., and then planted artifacts and archaeology in the Americas. And right. this, to me, is the most absurdly racist concept uh, and really frustrated me when I saw that in, in film. And I do remember taking a, taking a class on archaeology in undergrad and sitting with someone who um, we were looking at, we were looking at pyramid structures in Central America and he said, like, I don't see what the big deal is. The Egyptians made way bigger pyramids than this. <laughs> and I was just like, this, it doesn't even make sense as a thing to say. You're comparing two, two um, 
forms of architecture where there's something similar in some ways that's constructed for totally different purposes and by people who had no interaction with each other. It's not like somebody stole an idea and made a poor copy of it. It's, uh, it's just absurd. So anyway, well, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's, I think the pyramid is probably one of those universal concepts that people come to naturally. And there's something pretty remarkable about independent in- invention, I think. Yeah. No, I I agree. I think it's amazing that different peoples in different times come up with the same thing and that something can be invented and forgotten. And then later on, someone else comes with comes up with it, you know, a second time. Are they the first person? No. Does it make it, when they came up with it the second time, less important? Once again, no. You know, it's just... It's just history. It's just history. That's like the much bigger way of saying it is what it is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> and it but, is. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. It's just like if you think it like Machu Picchu, I probably just butchered that. The fact that people built that amazing, you know, those amazing structures that high up in the, you know, in a mountain is incredible theory that you could rebuild the Great Pyramid completely by volunteers if you just gave out free t-shirts and pizza. <laughs> that, that's really how Pharaoh did it. He gave them dominoes and t-shirts. Right. I I would say, well, I guess we don't know, but we really do know. <laughs> right. <laughs> very clearly documented how the pyramids were built and that was not and by whom and that that wasn't it that wasn't it there was no domino's pizza at the time right the people who built the pyramids were definitely um provided monetary uh compensation sums for their labor compensation yes for that labor yes (laughs) but i it was not in the form of domino's they maybe maybe if they had the option they would have traded up Right? I mean, who wouldn't who wouldn't be down for building pyramids with some pizza, you know? Right? I mean, yeah, exactly. That's definitely the way to get anything built. Yeah. Yeah. Pizza. Yeah, it's good stuff. If you are l- listening to this, don't think whatever your particular history is is sort of the end-all, be-all. It's all unique. It's all fascinating everywhere. And it is so hard to not just find interesting, cool sort of stories that led to how we got to where we are in the world today. It's all interrelated and it led us to this path and it's amazing and it's cool. And go to the library, check out books and read them. Don't just check them out, actually read them. Go to History with Sai and watch his videos on Mesopotamia or whatever your state, you know, museum of history is. They probably have some sort of, you know, research division or you know, your local universities will have stuff that you can go and find out about. Don't just think, oh, that's cool. Occasionally do a deep dive on history and you'll see how things led to, to now. Anyway, that's, that's my thought. And I think I'm going to have to wrap this up, Christina. I know that you, it's a Saturday as we're recording this and you took time out to do this and I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. And I certainly had fun. It was, it was certainly cool hearing about the various uh, you know, the digs you did and your perspective and everything. And I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on my podcast. Well, I'm so glad you had me. And uh, thanks for 
letting me chat with you. You're welcome. And the disclaimer at the front will show that these are your views and not the views of where we work. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> so anyway, um, with that, I guess I'm going to go ahead and sign off. And until next week, remember, try to live your life in a way that will make Mr. Rogers proud. Talk to you next time.